Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money and investing the economy and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 26. It's titled, Why is the Stock Market Falling? The subtitle of the episode is, The Stories We Tell Ourselves. Yes, in this episode, I'll answer why the markets are falling, why interest rates, to some extent, are plunging, at least in the U.S., to some extent in Europe. And that's what we'll discuss. But before that, let me tell you or share an experience where I really learned the power of story. Because we'll see in a few minutes that it's really the stories that we're telling ourselves and the lead story that's driving the market is starting to change. I used to run beauty pageants for money managers. Now, it wasn't a traditional beauty pageant. In the institutional investment world, we called them finals presentations. And so I would have an institutional client, such as a college endowment. They would have an investment committee, and they would want to, based on a recommendation, to be, let's say, allocating to a new asset type, say, emerging markets. And as part of that process, they would want to hire an outside manager to manage those assets. And and oftentimes, this could be a $10 million or more assignment, often more. And as part of that, we would bring in three or four managers to present for 30 minutes to the client. And the manager would would usually have some type of presentation booklet that everybody would have. Usually, there'd be one or two representatives of the firm there. And they would go through and outline how they managed money, the history of the firm, the culture. Essentially, they would tell a 30-minute story, a true story, but it was really a story. Now, now, why do I call it a story? Well, and why do I call it a, a beauty pageant? We would prepare information for the client, and, and they would already have all kinds of information on these managers. They, and we would have vetted them via our research group. So we would have done the due diligence. We would have visited on site. And so these were four of our recommended firms. And, and to some extent, from, from our standpoint, we were sort of indifferent as to which firm the client chose because we had confidence in all of them. So the managers would present one by one, and typically just kind of a setup. There'd be maybe 10 to 12 board members in the room. There'd be some staff members from the college. The two managers representing each firm would be at the front, at the head of the table, and everyone would have their presentation books, and then they would begin for 30 minutes. What I found fascinating about this process is because it was, it was a perfect laboratory to, to experience group 
decision-making and to watch, to some extent, oftentimes group think would take hold, but just sort of the interaction. Because after the managers would present, all three or four, then the committee would decide what they liked about each one. What I found, though, is invariably the firm that got hired was whoever was the best presenter. It came down to poise. It came down to confidence. It came down to storytelling ability. And sometimes it came down to looks. And and you would say, how could you make a decision based on those things. But the reality is we, we gravitate toward those intangibles, toward those stories. And what I want to outline today is how the financial markets are also driven by stories. And when the stories change or begin to change, that can lead to volatility until a new story comes about. There is a quote, there's a book that I, I recommend. It's by Daniel Kahneman, and it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And Daniel Kahneman, for many years, was a researcher in behavioral economics and just, just how the brain functions and, and our thought processes and has done many, many experiments over the years. Here's his quote with how we deal with uncertainty and limited information. You cannot help dealing with the limited information you have as if it were all there is to know. You build the best possible story from the information available to you. And if it is a good story, you believe it. Paradoxically, it is easier to construct a coherent story when you know little, when there are fewer pieces to fit into the puzzle. Our comforting conviction that the world makes sense rests on a secure foundation our almost unlimited ability to ignore our ignorance. The core of the illusion is that we believe we understand the past, which implies that the future also should be knowable. But in fact, we understand the past less than when we believe we do. We tell ourselves stories. We tell ourselves stories because we have incomplete information. In the investment world, and we, we, I've talked about this in the past episodes, the world is getting more risky, is an example how I invest without a map. Financial markets are very, very complex. So many moving pieces. And ignorance is abundant because we don't know what's going to happen. And as a result, storytelling is very much cherished in the financial world. The financial media, financial strategists, gurus are paid handsomely to tell us plausible stories about what is happening in the markets, and why, and what will happen next, where he asks them to connect the dots. If you read an article in Bloomberg, and so many of their stories are an explaining the market fell today because we want to know why things are happening. Why are so many stock markets today 10% below where they were even a few weeks ago? Why has oil prices fallen 25% since July. Tell us. We want to know the reason. We use stories as a way to both to guide our own financial decision-making and to rationalize our choices. We can't avoid it. I tell myself stories. I, I have some investments in my portfolio right now. That An example is master limited partnerships. I have a very high conviction in these vest- investments, yet there were times this week 
where they fell four or five percent in a day. And and, and, and so I go out and I, I research, go out to my network and, and, and find out what, what's going on. Tell me the story of what's happening because I don't understand this. That's normal in, in this environment. Everyone tells themselves stories, but invariably there are some stories that become more popular. And these are what I call the leading stories, the leading narratives, what is driving the financial markets. And since 2011, well, let me step back. 2008, 2009, complete chaos, complete fear. And in the call for governments was to step in and use massive stimulus packages to support the economy and, and take unprecedented measures. And governments and central banks did that. Then the recovery occurred, and by early 2010, the, the story changed. Throughout all that time, European Union hadn't really changed. They still had, the structure was the same. They still, many of the countries were running huge deficits, and, but interest rates were very, very low. And then suddenly the story changed, and the lead narrative changed to where investors became more worried about the European Union and whether it would stick together. And so rates shot up dramatically. And, and this, this continued through the first half of 2011. And it's not that anything had changed from 2009 to 2010. The only thing that changed was the leading narrative. The story changed. Volatility came back into the market. This was during the debt ceiling crisis in the U.S. So there was, there was a focus on government structure, government finances, and the market reflected it. Then Mario Draghi, the new head of the central bank in Europe, European Central Bank, said he would do and the central bank would do whatever it takes to save the European Union, to keep the economy on track. And, and from that point on, going into the fall 2011, markets have rebounded. And the leading story has been economies are growing. The, the stock market is going up. It has been modest economic growth. And central banks would do everything they can to continue to support that growth. And one of the phrases out there in that story narrative was buy the dip, BTD. Whenever markets would swoon and sell off a little bit, clarion call was go out and put more money in the stock market. And it was a strategy that was handsomely rewarded if you bought the dip. Now the story appears to be changing the lead narrative. We don't know what that will be. And it, because nobody, there's not a situation where there's somebody up above telling the story. It's stories, popular stories come up from the bottom. Everyone tells themselves stories, but if there, there eventually becomes a story that based on investor fear, based on investor greed, based on what investors feel comfortable with, that becomes the most popular story. And there can be more than one leading narrative, but invariably because markets are made up of humans and humans are irrational and humans love stories and because of the unknown, they 
gravitate to these stories. And there can be significant volatility until a new leading narrative emerges. And what's unknown is what will the level of stocks be or bonds be when, in terms of interest rates when the new leading narrative takes hold. In the meantime, there's very, very volatility. Now, we can't invest based on story. We tell ourselves stories, but we need to recognize that. The way that I invest is not to recognize nobody has a clue what's going to happen next. Nobody, even the smartest hedge funds in the world, they don't know. They tell themselves stories to suggest that they do know, but they don't. What we have with a complex system, just as we listened, learned in episode 15 on the world is, well, I forget what I called it, episode 15, where we talked about complex adaptive systems where, oh, it was stop worrying about the next market crash, where it's like a sand pile. You drop one kernel, one grain of sand at a time. Eventually, you get an avalanche. Nobody knows what when that will occur. And so the assumption is the next grain of sand won't cause an avalanche. With, but with weather, weather is also a complex adaptive system. We don't know, just as occurred in my Idaho town, where there is a thunderstorm would come up, that it would drop 15% of our annual rainfall in a matter of hours and cause massive flooding. But what we do have is we knew the conditions are ripe for thunderstorms on that particular day. And that's what we have with, with financial markets. We can look at the conditions. Just as you, if you go out sailing on a lake, you want to know what the weather conditions are going to be. You can't predict exactly what's going to happen, but we can at least look at the conditions. What are the conditions today? The conditions that I focus on most often are what are valuations? Is the market cheap? Is the market expensive? Two, I look at the the economy. Is the economy growing or is the condition suggesting a recession is plausible in the near future? And I also, third condition is what is the sentiment? What is the level of fear and greed? What is, it, what is the momentum aspect to the market? Are most stocks going up? Are most stocks going down? And is there a change in that momentum? So let's look at those conditions today. First off, let's look at valuations. Valuations for most markets are above average. If you look at the global stock market and one measure of valuation, I've had a number of emails saying, let's give us some examples of valuations. I look at something called earnings yield. And earnings yield takes a a particular indice or a particular country and look at the collective earnings that make up their stock market and divide it by the collective price. So earnings yield. It's, it's actually the inverse of the price-earnings ratio. Price-earnings ratio of PE is the price divided by earnings. Earnings yield is earnings divided by the price. And I like to look at it as a yield because then you can kind of compare that yield to what interest rates are, which is also a yield. So globally, if we look at the entire globe, the earnings yield is, is below average. So the lower the yield, the, the pricier the market, which makes sense because you're dividing a set amount of earnings into a higher price stock market. 
And so you want a very, very high earnings yield. The highest earning yields in the world right now is in Russia, about 18. And, and, and we know why, you know, some of, some of their challenge, I'm not saying go invest in the Russian stock market, but it is one of the cheapest markets in the world. Second cheapest market would be China, which has an earnings yield of about 10. And I talked about China in episode 17 and why, why I have an investment in China. But globally, the stock market on a valuation basis is above average. That's not in our favor, but that's the condition. We recognize that particularly it's in U.S., in the Europe, in Europe, the stock market valuations are above average, meaning the earnings yields are, are below average. So that's a risk, and that's a condition. Emerging markets, including Russia and China, the earnings yields are above average, and so those markets are cheaper. Yet, those markets are also trying to find a new, a new story, a new leading narrative. Is the, the growth miracle that they've occurred is that changing? Because they, they've had slower economic growth the last few years. So that's condition number one. Valuations in the world, in, in the globe, are above average, and that's a risk. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. 
Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Second area in terms of conditions is, is are we heading toward a recession? And in episode seven, I talked about this concept of purchaser, purchasers, managers, indices, or PMIs. And these surveys that are done across the globe indicating what people particularly businesses, felt the economy was doing. And there's, there's manufacturing PMIs and there's services PMIs and, and they're done in every country. Globally, the PMI for beginning, I guess it would be for as of the beginning of the month of October, it was 52.2. Generally speaking, a PMI above 50 suggests growth is continuing. Below 50 suggests that growth is slowing and, and a recession risk is higher. So global PMI right now is 52.2. So continue with that story of modest growth. Yet the Eurozone is down to 50.5. So just on the cusp of a potential recession. And the recession risk in Europe is now almost uh, 50 to 60%. And and so there, there is definite headwinds in Europe. And that's one reason why oil prices have fallen 20%, because slower demand or less demand and supply is increasing, particularly in the U.S. So that's PMI in Europe. PMI in the U.S. is 56.6, suggesting growth is continuing. But across the globe, in the month of October, more PMIs dropped. And so the there appeared potentially is a slowing economy or even a recession. It's, it's not greater than 50% risk right now. It's probably close to a 50% risk. Why is that important? Because during recessions, if there's a bear market or a decline, the average loss is about 40 to 45% across the globe. And that's significant. That's an extreme event. In a non-recessionary environment, if there's a bear market, the typical loss is about 20%, so half that. So it's important to recognize, are the conditions suggesting a recession is imminent or are we heading in that direction? And the answer is no, not yet. But there are areas where the risks are are much more elevated than they were a few months ago, Europe being an example of that. What about other conditions? What about the level of fear and greed? And this is where I'm most positive. The riskiest time for the stock market is when investors are exuberant and they're excited and they think everything is is A-OK. And and so when they're exuberant, that's not where we are right now. Investors across the globe are very, very pessimistic, as pessimistic as they've been this year. And and that's actually – that's a positive. It – if – things settle down a little bit, that net negative sentiment usually leads to a rebound in the stock market. Except when it doesn't, because if the narrative changes so dramatically, there, there's always fear in the stock market as the market sells off and continues to sell off. And so the key is, is to wait for sentiment to get to an extreme and then and then reverse and and there's some indicators that that I look at for that that I'll have to share with you at at some point and, and I haven't figured out exactly 
how to do that, whether to do a newsletter or something to give you a better indication of some of the things I'm looking at. But this fearful sentiment is actually a positive for the market. Less positive is is the momentum built into the market. In other words, one, one, one thing I look at is the volume, so trading volume, how many trades, shares of stocks are trading per day. To what extent is the volume of stocks that were down, how does that compare to the volume of stocks that were up that day? And you can kind of look over a, a 10-day average. And in a typical bull market, the volume, the ferocity with which investors are buying stocks that are going up is higher than the volume of the stocks going down. That's, that has started to reverse to where the volume of each is about the same. And on some days, the volume of stocks going down was greater than the volumes of stocks going up. That's actually a negative for the market because in most bear markets, the volume, the, the, veracity with, with, the ferocity with which investors are trying to get out of the market is very, very high. I mean, there's always one buyer per seller. There's always a meeting of the minds in the stock market. But... If if there's more if the stocks if there's a greater demand for stocks that the people want to sell that pushes down the price and, and the volume of the stocks going down is also higher than the volume of the stocks going up so that's a negative for the market the the overall momentum of the market in terms of a breadth in terms of what percentage of stocks appear to be rolling over and going down is increasing that's also a negative the other condition though is seasonality generally. The May to October timeframe is, is not a great time for investing, whereas the latter part of November, December tends to be quite favorable for markets. And so I'm not, I'm actually kind of excited right now because finally there's some areas in the market that are getting more attractive. In episode 17, I talked about our investors complacent and, and I discussed the risk in the non-investment grade bond market in terms of junk bonds and how overall rates had gotten very, very low and the spread or incremental yield you got for investing in non-investment grade bonds had been very, very narrow. Now, in the last three to four weeks, the Yield on non-investment grade bonds is now back over 6%. And the spread or the differential between non-investment grade bonds and government bonds, at least in the U.S., is, is as wide as it's been in, the, in a year, particularly today when the bond rates for government bonds have dropped to, well, in terms of the 10-year treasury, just about 2%. The 30-year treasury bond is now under 3%. In episode 22, we talked about, will interest rates increase? My feeling at the time was not likely given how U.S. interest rates were so much higher than Europe. Now, that, I guess, to some extent, that was a prediction, but that was a story I was telling myself. Steve Luthold is is a market strategist, one of the few that I listened to and actually would pay for his service at my old firm. He always had a saying where predictions are for show, numbers are for dough. And by numbers, he meant what are the conditions. He would make predictions. We tell ourselves stories, what we think is going to happen. But I'd rather make decisions based on what are the conditions and risk manage based on that. With the stock market pricey 
in most areas of the globe, that's a risk with the investors very, very fearful. That's a positive. With the economy continuing to grow across the globe, not yet in a recession, that's a positive. But if it tips over and where PMIs get below 50, that's definitely a risk. And you kind of have to weigh all these things, and that's what it means to invest without a map. You look at the conditions, you make a decision, ideally move in the areas that are attractive, and non-investment-grade bonds are getting there. Perhaps once we hit bottom extreme, once that new narrative takes place and we settle, then then markets will get less volatile. And and that's that's the way markets work. There are pockets of volatility happen. It happens in clumps. Irrespective of emerging markets hypothesis, modern portfolio theory says that's not the way it's supposed to be if you listen to episode 20. But the reality is markets are clumpy, volatility happens in periods, and that's mostly because the, the leading narrative is changing and investors are trying to figure out what new story they want to believe in. Now, what if you're a buy and hold investor? In other words, you're, which is a perfectly legitimate way to invest if you can hold on to that roller coaster when it's heading down the steep incline like we are today. And I want to share with you an experience I had in 2008 to, to indicate here's the level of conviction you need to have as a buy and hold investor. During October of 2008, right after Lehman had failed, markets were plummeting along the globe, across the globe. I went, flew to New York with one of our analysts at our firm that covered value managers. And Christy and I went to one of the firms we visited was Pazina. And met with the team there. Rick Pizzina runs the firm. And mainly just to get their view of the market. But just th- this was a firm to some extent under crisis. Their, stock, their portfolios were down 40%. They had overweighted banks because banks were cheap and banks continued to fall dramatically. Not only that, but Pizzina itself had done an IPO for their firm, an initial public offering. They were now publicly traded. The stock, the the IPO was September 2007. I'm there a year later. The stock has fallen from 20 down to 5. By February of 2009, the stock would have fallen to $2, a 90% decline. So these managers at Pacina, their net worth had plummeted. Their portfolios were down 40 to 50%. We go to meet with, with this, the team. We, we sat in a research meeting and then we met, met with Rick Pazina individually. I have never seen an investor with, with such conviction. He was, he was even looking, if I recall correctly, to go out and borrow money to go buy his stock, which was in the 3 to $4 range the stock for the Pazina Investment Management. They were holding their positions and and they had they had a, they knew their holdings well. They felt the market was overcorrecting and they were going to hold on. And and that's the level of conviction you need if you're a buy and hold investor. 
you, you, you have to you have to ride out these storms, the ups and downs. And and, and I I've told you I I, I can't do that. I, I'm just not I'm just not wired that way. And, and so I am adjusting my portfolio. I mean, there's holdings I'll hold for years. On the other hand, I prefer to to make changes based on the conditions as I outlined. Those are two viable ways to to invest. So how did the Pazina story end? Well, their portfolios came back. Their stock now is trading close to 10. They continue to attract clients. I think they manage $28 billion now. And so that story had a happy ending. We need to decide what type of investors are. Are we are we buy and hold, having conviction like Pazina, or do we want to adjust our portfolios based on market conditions, based on opportunities? That's episode 26. You can reach me with questions, JD at jdavidstein.com. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guides, have those show notes emailed to you on a weekly basis, along with questions that I answer from listeners and readers and share things that are not, but I didn't happen to share on the podcast. Everything on this episode I've shared with you is for general education only. I have not provided investment advice. I'm not considering your specific risk situation. Purely general education on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. Next week, episode 27.